0: Well good evening, uh, wonderful to see you all back again and uh, we're on a long journey, a pilgrimage that's going to last uh, two years. Uh, this is uh, semester one of uh, four semesters and uh, we are thinking perhaps at the end of each semester and the end of this semester that maybe we'll have a Q&A evening uh, to meet some of the questions, uh, some of you have been asking questions on uh, the website that 's uh, listed uh, under the title Center Point School of Theology on, on the outline this evening uh, the fp theology school where you can ask uh, questions and uh, some of you have already been doing that we 've had uh, I think eight thousand visitors uh, to that site. Uh, This week, so you're only a a fraction of others uh, have had emails from all around the country and and beyond, uh, from outside the country even, uh, um, who are evidently listening in uh, to these uh, lectures. Well, uh, first of all, let me say something uh, very quickly about last week's topic, which was general revelation, and uh, a number of you asked uh, a question, and let me address it this way that uh, general revelation is sufficient to damn, but it is insufficient to save. Uh, Every human being is bombarded by general revelation, the revelation of God's existence and being. Uh, But no one lives up to Uh, that which uh, has been revealed to them. So it is sufficient to damn. No one will be able to say uh, on the day of judgment, I I never knew. Um, But uh, creation doesn't reveal to us that Jesus saves. Uh, You can't look at a rock or a flower or a sunset and say, oh yes, uh, Jesus saves. Uh, For that you need special uh, revelation. All of that to say uh, that the imperative to evangelism and the imperative to mission is paramount. Unless people hear the gospel, they are not in a position to respond to it, and therefore are not in a position to be saved. Uh, And I think that what scripture is telling us is that we have a responsibility, therefore, to take special revelation to the entire world, to every nation. That uh, is the commission that has been laid upon us. Well, tonight I want to segue from general revelation to special uh, revelation. Ultimately and it'll be next week before we get there uh, we want to talk about the doctrine of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the finality of Scripture. Uh, and and a lot of things in between, but there's a a few steps that we have to uh, ascend before we can get to the doctrine of Scripture itself, Uh, and so tonight we're going to be looking at special revelation. Uh, I want to make a few comments about the relationship between general and special uh, revelation, and I have five of them there uh, on page two, that General and special revelation do not uh, disclose, they don't reveal a different God. Uh, the God who is revealed in general revelation is the only God there is. Uh, he's the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that you look at a rock and you think, oh yes, God is three persons uh, and one God. No, of course not, but it's not a different God. Uh, it, there is only one God, and the same God is revealed in general and uh, special revelation. Uh, secondly, there's nothing in general revelation that is not, in fact, uh, revealed in special revelation. Everything that you see in general revelation is also given to us in special revelation. But special revelation reveals more. Uh, there are things in special revelation that you don't get in general revelation. Thirdly, special revelation is not um, more cogent or more convincing or more powerful than uh, general revelation. Um, Special revelation too can fall on deaf ears. Uh, You can preach the gospel, you can witness, you can read the Bible Uh, And it still can fall upon deaf ears uh, in the same way that general revelation can fall upon uh, deaf ears. So special revelation isn't isn't more powerful than than general uh, revelation. Uh, Fourthly, special revelation casts a light on uh, general revelation. And uh, one of the most famous metaphors here uh, is a metaphor from uh, John Calvin Uh, John Calvin says um, that that special revelation is like putting on spectacles or glasses, if you like, um, that brings uh, that which is sort of blurry in general revelation into focus. Uh, You know, uh, I think I quoted uh, a hymn uh, of uh, George Robinson, Loved with Everlasting Love, Heaven above is softer blue, earth around is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauties shine. Since I know us, now I know I am his and he is mine. And I think Robinson there is saying that with the aid of scripture... You know, now that you're a believer and and you have special revelation, you now look at that which was revealed in general revelation with a great deal more clarity uh, than you did before. You you now don't just hear birds and think beauty, you now see birds and think of the sheer wonder of Almighty God that he would create such uh, an awesome spectacle as a bird. And then fifthly, um, general revelation provides, I think this is where we ended last week, uh, it provides a point of contact uh, for a special uh, revelation. And I, I introduced you to that German word, which you've been repeating and using uh, in emails and on, uh, and on the, t- the telephone all week. Agnumfungsbank in, uh, in German. <laughs> Um, which is just a great word uh, for a point of contact. Whenever you speak to an unconverted person, if you speak to somebody who's a pagan, you speak to somebody who has never heard of Jesus in their entire lives, they know more than they are willing to admit You know something about them that they are not willing to admit about themselves, that they are bombarded with general revelation to which they are constantly saying, no. They are holding it down in unrighteousness. So let's ask the question then, what's so special about special revelation? Uh, And I want to answer this along a number of lines of thought here. First of all, that that it's special in content. Uh, That which is revealed in special revelation is special because of its content. Um, Things that cannot be known just by looking or seeing or hearing uh, or encountering uh, the universe, the cosmos, the world uh, in which... Uh, we live. Uh, unless God were to reveal it, it would be unknown to us. That, that's why special revelation is special. The content, the, the message that it conveys, uh, cannot be gleaned simply with with uh, our natural uh, faculties. Uh, there are also special agents involved uh, in special revelation, uh, and uh, here. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of um, uh, folk like uh, patriarchs, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and folk like prophets in the Old Testament, and folk like apostles in the New Testament. Um, Special revelation comes through these special agents. God raises up special agents through whom he gives special revelation They were organs, if you like, through which God spoke uh, special words. Uh, so that we can say, uh, as Paul does in, second, in First Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. Uh, it's special because of the recipients, not just, not just the content, not just, uh, not just the messengers, um, but the recipients are special. Because only those who are within reach of special revelation get special revelation. And not everybody is within reach of special revelation. Uh, There are people groups in the world who don't have a Bible uh, in any form. Uh, There are people groups who speak a certain language in whose language there is no Bible. There's no Old Testament. There's no New Testament. There's no Gospel of John. There's no special um, revelation. Uh, Foreign nations in uh, Moses's day, uh, the surrounding nations of Moses's day, uh, did not have the Torah. They did not have uh, the first uh, five books uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, It was uh, confined to uh, a small piece of land mass. Now, occasionally, uh, occasionally you hear of a Gentile here and there who has come by the providence of God uh, into contact with special revelation and they have, they have become interested, they become God followers and some of them have even been uh, regenerated and, and converted. Um, but uh, special revelation uh, only comes to those who are within hearing uh, of the message of special uh, revelation that's why romans 10:14 uh, is so important how then will they call on him whom they have not believed and how are they to believe on him whom they've on whom they've never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching that's paul's uh, imperative then to us who have special revelation, to go to those who don't have special re- revelation, uh, and, and actually these days they may be living next door. Uh, they may have been raised in a, a non-Christian home, and actually they don't know anything about Jesus. So what they know about Jesus isn't, isn't true. It's just mythology. Uh, so you have to go with the words of special revelation to them. Uh, fourthly, they are, uh, uh, special revelation is special, uh, because of the means of delivery the means of delivery now uh, we, we're going to expand this thought uh, a little and we need to, we need to put our thinking caps on uh, here uh, f- first of all that uh, that special revelation is comes in the form of deeds or acts and words not simply words, but deeds and words. Uh, God comes uh, and he, he does something. And he does something special and he does something extraordinary. Uh, and that act itself is an act of revelation. Uh, so, uh, so the creation, uh, the exodus, uh, the exile... Uh, bethlehem uh, the, the the Virgin birth in Bethlehem, Calvary, Pentecost, all of these are acts they 're things that God did. He stepped into time and space and did something extraordinary that was out of accord with how uh, the the cosmos naturally functions, the world naturally functions. It was, these acts themselves tell us something about God. Uh, The incarnation uh, is an act that says... Something about the humility, the the humbleness uh, of the second person of the Trinity. That he was in the form of God, but he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and was found in fashion as a man. Now, um, those acts, those, those perforations of God into time and space... ...need words of explanation... If you watched, for example, the movie uh, the, the, the Passion of Christ, uh, Mel Gibson's movie on Jesus, and uh, some of you may have objections about seeing uh, pictorial representations of Jesus, and I, I respect your, your, your point of view, but uh, just go with me for a minute. As, this is just an illustration. Even if you've never seen the movie or have, or, or have religious objections to seeing pictures of Jesus. Um, If you've you've seen that movie and you've seen the depiction of crucifixion, um, without a word of interpretation, which the movie, of course, does not have, all that you see is something that's horrible. Um, It's, it's in one sense, disgusting. Um, It tells you about violence. It tells you about... Um, the hatred of a certain part of society but it doesn't say, just by looking at it substitutionary atonement it doesn't say, by looking at it, propitiation It, it doesn't say God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself it doesn't say, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be reckoned the righteousness of God in him that's a word of interpretation there's the event of Calvary. To the Jews, it was an offense. To the Greeks, it was just nonsense. It was just another, another victim of Roman crucifixion. Another person getting the just deserts uh, for his crime. But Paul takes that redemptive act... And interprets it with redemptive words. And gives that act a meaning. So there are acts and words. There are deeds and there are words. Now let's, uh, let's track this uh, down uh, through the pages of uh, scripture. Uh, we're talking about special revelation. And that special uh, revelation is delivered to us. Uh, in special ways. If you go right back to the beginning, if you go back to the book of Genesis, for example, the early books of the Bible, you have these extraordinary incidents where you have an angel. um, Moses will call this person uh, uh, a malak yahweh in hebrew uh, an angel of the lord a messenger of the lord um, sometimes he's referred to in the same passage as uh, an angel or or a messenger of god and then in the same passage um, that that angel will be referred to as the lord himself right there old testament appearances in human form, in, in in what seems like flesh and blood, and eyes and nose and a mouth, and they speak, and um, these are called theophanies. Um, uh, it's an epiphany, it's an appearance of theos, it's, a, it's an appearance of God. Um, Now, I know that that it's tempting to say, oh, this is Jesus in the book of Genesis. That's that's probably seven steps too far. Um, They are certainly pointers to what God ultimately will do in Jesus, but I'm I'm kind of reluctant in every single instance of a theophany to say, well, that's Jesus. Um, They are pre-incarnate enfleshments uh, of God. Uh, in the early stages of redemptive history. Uh, and they come speaking the words of God, theophanies. They give special uh, revelation. Um, visions. Uh, in, uh, in the uh, uh, Old Testament, in First Samuel 2, uh, Chapter 9 and verse 9, it's a, it's, a, it's a well-known text, a very important text. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of sidebar comment on the part of the author of 1 Samuel, saying that a prophet used to be called a navi, um, uh, a seer, because he saw things. Right, in, in earlier times, he's giving you a kind of historic, he's speaking to his own generation. He's saying, you know, these prophets that I'm talking about now, they used to be called seers. Right, 1 Samuel 9 9. I'm not making this up now, this is in 1 Samuel 9 9. And uh, uh, they were called seers because they saw things, they had visions. Uh, you have. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the extraordinary vision of the holiness of God uh, that Isaiah saw in the temple. Holy, I saw the Lord high and lifted uh, up. You have uh, visions in uh, the book of Daniel. You have visions in the book of uh, Zechariah uh, and so on and uh, all the way down into the New Testament. In, uh, in uh, the apocalypse, in the book of Revelation, John uh, sees things. It's the Predominant verb in the book of Revelation. I, I saw, I saw, I saw visions, uh, dreams, especially in the early narratives. Uh, Joseph, for example, has uh, has a, a, a lot of dreams. It's not just uh, Dr. Ferguson who has dreams, uh, but uh, Joseph's dreams were vehicles of special revelation. Dr. Ferguson's dreams are not vehicles of special revelation. They may be interesting and fascinating, and they tell us a lot about him, to be sure, uh, and, and Dorothy, I'm sure that's, that's right. Um, but... Um, they're not vehicles of special revelation, as uh, Joseph's dreams were, or, or Daniel was an interpreter of dreams, right? So there are these uh, dreams. Then, then turn the page to prophecy. Uh, p- prophecy, prophets. Uh, prophets in the Old Testament, uh, spokespersons for God. Uh, prophets um, did more preaching ...than seeing into the future. There were more fourth tellers than foretellers. tellers uh, There was a little bit of what prophets did in seeing into the future and so on... ...but most of what they did was actually preaching. They were fourth tellers They were proclaimers. They were spokesmen. And they began their sentences with words like, "...thus says the Lord." In other words, what I am about to say is what God has been saying to me. I'm I'm delivering to you the very word of God. Uh, Moses uh, was a prophet. He's the first prophet uh, mentioned in the Bible in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, But he was not a foreteller. He he didn't tell us about the future so much as one who preached. He was a proclaimer uh, of the word of God. Um, The Incarnation. Uh, as uh, an event of special uh, revelation, a unique uh, event, a once, uh, a once and for all uh, event. Uh, Bethlehem is a supreme revelatory moment. It tells us uh, enormously important things about God. Uh, it tells us things about God the Father, it tells us things about God the Son, it tells us things about God the Holy Spirit. Uh, he was conceived by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. So the Incarnation tells us something about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a, it's a revelatory event, it's a revelatory uh, moment. So much so that Paul can say uh, later to the Corinthians um, that that he uh, let light shine out of darkness. Uh, God has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That when you look into the face of Jesus Christ, you see the glory of God. What is God like? You know the question that a child might ask? What is God like? and he is like Jesus. He's like Jesus. There is no unchrist-likeness in God. All the qualities that you see uh, in Jesus are qualities uh, that you can ascribe to uh, Almighty God. And then uh, an aspect that is sometimes passed over um, apostolic tradition. Uh, every time we, we uh, have the Lord's Supper, or at least most times we have the Lord's Supper, we uh, read from 1 Corinthians 11 For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that on the night on which uh, uh, Jesus was betrayed, uh, after he had given thanks, he took bread and, and blessed it, uh, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take, eat, this do in remembrance of me, and so on and so on. Um, but notice the verbs I received, I also delivered. Uh, They're actually very specific words in uh, in Greek. Um, uh, They are are words that are associated with the passing on of tradition without adding or taking away. So what Paul, Paul, remember, was not uh, in the upper room. Paul Paul had never seen Jesus except after the resurrection. Uh, so he wasn't there. Paul wasn't there. Saul of Tarsus wasn't there in the upper room. So this 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 truth that he's passing on, he's received it from the Lord. Uh, the Lord gave him this information, and he's passing it on. He's not adding to it. He's not taking away from it. There's this body of truth. There's this uh, this corpus of truth that he's handing on. Uh, Paul is the vehicle of special. Uh, revelation, and um, it's a, it's a little insight into how um, there's a there's a tradition among the apostles of of, of handing on special um, revelation. Now, on page five, um, uh, I have a, a quote there from uh, Lessing, uh, Lessing uh, in a uh, German, of course, and. Uh, uh, some of you will remember perhaps back in college and uh, doing um, uh, literature, studying literature or perhaps studying history and, and studying the philosophy of uh, historiography. How, how do we know anything from the past? You know, how can we be absolutely sure about the past? You, know, you, uh, you uh, are constantly seeing uh, rewritings of history. Uh, People rewrite history, they they make history to be what they want it to be. Uh, They omit facts, they embellish facts, they exaggerate facts, they make up facts, uh, they disregard facts, and all of a sudden uh, you you have an account of the past that doesn't bear any semblance to the past. How can we be sure uh, of the data uh, that uh, that, uh, we purport to be part of the essential data of Christianity? How can we be sure that the things Jesus said and did are absolutely accurate as Uh, the Bible actually uh, teaches them. Well part of that is the body of tradition. Uh, Paul is saying there's a body of truth and I'm passing it on to you and it gets passed on. Eventually it gets inscripturated into the Bible. The Bible comes all the way down to us. There's a, a link between the words of Jesus The acts of Jesus, the words and acts of the apostles, and the Bible that we read uh, today. Now, Lessing talked about the ugly Dutch, ugly ditch, sorry, anyone who's Dutch, or from Holland, um, and if you just happen to be listening to this recording from Holland, I I humbly apologize, there was a slip of the tongue, Um, the ugly ditch uh, of history. Uh, It's a very famous remark from uh, Lessing uh, that you can't really know the past. You know, all you can know is the present. Uh, It's the now that's important because you can't really know the past. Now, if that's true, you might as well give up Christianity today because Christianity is based on actual things that happened in the past. If we can't be sure about the incarnation, if you can't be sure about Calvary, if you can't be sure about the resurrection, you might as well give up Christianity. Uh, so, so Lessing, Lessing was, was pulling the rug from uh, beneath uh, Christianity ent- entirely. And then, um, and then Scripture. Uh, we're, we're still talking about the forms here of, uh, of special uh, revelation and how it comes to us. And, and uh, Scripture, and we'll talk more about Scripture as a vehicle for special revelation. Not only is the Bible a record of special revelation, it is itself special revelation. The actual production of the Bible is a God event. Right? It is it is special. It is is God saying something about Himself. He's a God who speaks and He's a God who wants us to know and remember and recall and cherish and study what He has spoken. That's the kind of God He is. That's that's a that's a an aspect of special um, revelation. Now, um, the next few pages are uh, somewhat dense, and um, I put in pictures just to keep some of you amused uh, while we spend a few minutes, um, because all of what I've just said, and especially you you see where I'm going. You know, God has spoken in times past by the prophets, but has now spoken to us by his son, right? Hebrews 1.1. God spoke in times past by dreams, by visions, by prophets, by apostles, by redemptive events like the exodus and the exile and the incarnation and Calvary and Pentecost and so on and so forth. But now we have the scriptures. The ultimate source of special revelation for us today is the Bible, the scriptures. Now, lots of questions. I know next week, week after, week after that, we'll be looking at everything to do with the Bible. Um, But part of the argument from the past to the canon of scripture that incorporates special revelation and is itself special special revelation, are philosophies, worldviews, that deny the possibility of God um, being able or desirous even to do that. Uh, And I I have put down here um, at the top of page um, uh, 6, Uh, Personal and propositional. Uh, Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, Special revelation is more than just an encounter that gives you a nice feeling about God. Special revelation is about God actually speaking. He He speaks words, verbs, nouns, adjectives, adverbs, clauses, subordinate clauses doctrines, truths, true truths. Now, let me pick out uh, a few. Uh, in the shadow, if you were here last week, in the shadow of Immanuel Kant uh, and the Enlightenment, and uh, Kant said that if God exists, and I think Kant did believe in God, uh, he just it was just irrelevant to Immanuel Kant because the noumena cannot perforate into the phenomena, right? That was was the great sentence of the Enlightenment. That was Immanuel Kant. Um, The 20th century has been trying and failing to recover from the Enlightenment ever since. Uh, And you have uh, various people. Charles uh, C.H. Dodd is the first uh, uh, name I have down there. Uh, He's Welsh, very famous, radical, uh, liberal, uh, denied uh, the concept of the wrath of God entirely, uh, was uh, was almost single-handedly responsible for the emergence of the Revised Standard Version, uh, and the Revised Standard Version was a version that tried to obliterate uh, from uh, the record of the New Testament any notion uh, of a propitiatory atonement, uh, an atonement that appeases the wrath of, uh, of God. Now, Uh, Dodd, among other things, Dodd did not believe that uh, God directly spoke to men. So that when you have in the Bible uh, accounts, for example, of Jeremiah actually hearing the voice of God and saying, Here am I, send me. He hears a voice. Uh, For C.H. Dodd, that's just an hallucination. It's a religious hallucination. Uh, and it 's an interesting account of uh, jeremiah 's religious experience, um, but it is not a God directly speaking to Jeremiah uh, then uh, let me let me pass over uh, some of these uh, and and move on uh, to um, well let me let me say a quick word about William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Second World War uh, in the early 1940s. Um, God showed Himself in historical acts, and enlightened men discerned the special significance of these events and recorded them in Scripture. So that what you have in the Bible are are the records of of individuals with uh, with insight uh, and uh, and some discernment. But but what you have is their record of how they viewed certain historical events that took place in the past. So the Bible is a history book that contains the religious experiences uh, of uh, certain uh, individuals. Uh, You look at... uh, Karl Barth, and we have an expert in Karl Barth, uh, sitting directly opposite me, uh, so you go to uh, Dr. McDowell if you want to know anything more about Karl Barth. Um, but uh, Karl Barth did not believe uh, in revelation from God that was directly propositional. Now, he did believe uh, he was trying to respond to the Enlightenment. He was trying to respond to Immanuel Kant. Uh, and he did believe in a concept which he called the Word of God. But that Word of God was not to be associated with the Bible. Certainly not with the words of the Bible as verbs and nouns and adjectives. The, the, the Word of God for Kalbat somehow or other floats Uh, above the Bible, so that when you read the Bible, and the Bible was important to Cowbat, because it had a lot of tradition, God had used the Bible in the past to speak to people, Um, but it wasn't the words themselves, it was the encounter that you have with the Bible, with this religious tradition, that somehow, in some way, you have an encounter, you have an experience of of God, uh, in some way, in some form, in some fashion. Um, now, for Barth, it wasn't, it wasn't directly propositional. So Karl Barth is not the answer. Karl Barth is the problem of the 20th century church, right? That's my position, that's what I believe, but I believe that absolutely, 100%, Uh, And with some conviction that Karl Barth is not the answer, but he is still the problem for the church. Because unless you have a means for God to speak directly, and that that direct speech gets recorded in scripture, what is the point of the church? What is the point of faith? What is the point of this meeting? because this meeting says you're not here i would be i would be honored i would be i would be big headed if i thought that you were here just to hear my opinions you know my religious experience is that profound that that i can fill this room full of people no you're here because you believe god has spoken and he has spoken in scripture true truth that scripture isn't just the record of the experience of enlightened individuals in the past, it is God speaking. So that when you read the Bible, you are hearing the voice of God. The words themselves are the voice of God. Now all of these people, C.H. Uh, Dodd, William Temple, John Bailey, uh, Karl Barth, uh, Bultman, and another important name, all of these people denied that. And they denied it in different ways and to different extremes, but all of them in the end denied the possibility of propositional revelation, special revelation in the form of words and ideas and concepts and doctrines. Now, uh, if you look at the middle of page 8, I've tried to summarize all of that in a few bullet points. All of these men... Uh, bring with them a priori assumptions. Um, God does not reveal propositions or words. God does not disrupt the physical order, Bultmann uh, So Bultmann denies every, everything that looks like a miracle in scripture uh, is, is, is impossible uh, because creation and science uh, isn't like that. Uh, um, The Bible is important and to be esteemed, but fallible because in the end, it's a human document. And that's basically the position of Karl Barth. If the Bible is basically a human document, we need to go home, folks. Because there are better things to do. There are more exciting things to do if the Bible is merely a human document. Um, Now, such views, I suggest, make Bible study and preaching an exercise in ignorance because we at the end of the day simply don't know what we have are the opinions of men and maybe they're interesting opinions and maybe they're opinions of men with great personalities and maybe they're the opinions of men with with uh, with a great deal of uh, uh, of humor but at the end of the day that's all it is and it cannot have it cannot have the categorical imperative of saying to us, this is what God is saying to you. Notice also it redefines faith, because what is faith in the New Testament? F- faith means subjecting the mind and conscience to the Word of God. That's what faith is. It's subjecting, it's, sub- it's, it's being submissive to what God says. Submissive in our minds in our thinking and submissive in our consciences into in, in how we evaluate what's right and wrong what's of moral value and only god has the right to tell us that so it makes preaching an act of ignorance it redefines faith and it removes teaching from the life of the church so people with a low view of special revelation, people with a low view of the Bible, um, go hand in hand with those who have a low view of the need for teaching, especially, um, especially doctrine. Now turn uh, to page 11. I've given a little table of summary and you can look at that at your leisure or leisure. Uh, turn to page 11. Um, special revelation is also progressive Or perhaps better, cumulative. Are you tracking? Are you following? What I mean by that is, God doesn't give it all at once. He gives it little by little. Um, You know, when you read the Bible for the first time, it, it sort of puzzles you, doesn't it? Because you encounter things... You encounter things like, in the Old Testament, there seems to be a tolerance, not an approval, but a tolerance of polygamy. I mean, you read the Old Testament and you say, how could these people have more than one wife? You know, there was, there was a, there's a growing intolerance of it as the Bible progresses. Or, or think of the clarity of certain doctrines, like, uh, like the resurrection. Where where do you find the resurrection in the Old Testament? Uh, With difficulty. Uh, If all you have is the first five books of the Bible, you probably probably wouldn't find it. The Sadducees, you know, there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And one of the reasons they didn't believe in the resurrection is because all they had were the first five books of the Old Testament. They they didn't have the prophets. All, All they had was the law. The first five books, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection because they had all of the Old Testament, but the Sadducees did not. Or, or think of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, I know, and we'll come to this uh, later. Um, actually, it'll be in the New Year. It'll be probably the, one of the first lessons that we look at after Christmas and New Year and Hogmanay and all of that. And, uh, and we'll look at the doctrine of God and we'll look at the doctrine of the Trinity. And, uh, but let me, just, uh, let me just say here, yes, it's, it's, it's tempting... To read Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our image, and, and you see the word us, and you think, well, there it is, the Trinity in chapter 1 of Genesis in the very first page of the Bible. Except that never occurred to any godly Jew in the Old Testament. You know, Moses didn't draw that conclusion. Daniel didn't draw that conclusion. Ezekiel never drew that conclu- conclusion. They saw the plurality as a plurality of majesty, and not a plurality of number. So the doctrine of the Trinity is, is something that only it sort of bursts forth. It's like a seed in the Old Testament, and it's hard to find. Yes, with hindsight, you can you can you can see certain things that are certainly um, that are certainly compliant with the doctrine of the Trinity. But it's when when you read the Gospel of John and the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, that's absolutely astounding for a Jew to write God with God. God alongside of God, and yet there's only one God. And it's absolutely astounding because the one thing that Jews believed was the unity of God because they said it three times a day, the Shema of Israel in Deuteronomy 6.4, Behold, the Lord your God is one. So there is a progression uh, in the Bible, and there's progression in special revelation. It's, it's, not, given, it's not given all at once. It's, it's given in little doses, and it grows. And then, and then certain things get left behind as it grows. Uh, Look at the the top of page 12, and I want to to start with progression within the New Testament itself. And and I want us to think about some very difficult issues, because all of what we've said so far has been relatively easy. And now I want us to think about some rather difficult issues, that there is progression even in the pages of the New Testament itself. Think of Acts chapter 2 pentecost all who believed were together and and had all things in common this wasn't communism it wasn't enforced this was a voluntary sharing on the part of the early believers in jerusalem what is that well it's nice but it didn't seem to work and as you turn the pages of the acts it sort of disappears There's an initial enthusiasm that sort of disappears. There's a a progression of thought, even within the New Testament. Uh, Take something like house churches. You, You know, house churches have come back into vogue again, but actually, it's like going back to being an infant or a teenager. Because house churches are what you see in the Acts of the Apostles. But when you come to later writings of Paul, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, you've got things like deacons, and elders, and structure, and very specific things said about worship, so that you see the progression of a church that begins in an upper room. And then expands to houses. But by the time but by the time Paul is writing his final epistles, several decades later, the church has grown. The, the, the church has matured. The church has taken on structure. Or take, or take spiritual gifts, um, tongues and and prophecy. And you have to ask yourself, when Paul is writing his final epistle, Second Timothy, it's a swan song. Uh, he is killed, he is martyred immediately after writing Second Timothy. And he's writing what he understands, I think, is his last epistle. And he's giving instruction to Timothy, young Timothy, to pick up the mantle and to, to go with it because, uh, because Paul isn't going to be around anymore. And he's talking about uh, what Timothy should do and uh, signs of maturity in the church and the sorts of things he ought to be looking for in the church. But there's no mention of tongues. And there's no mention of prophecy. As though, as though for Paul, at the end of his life, these spiritual gifts have already been superseded. That they actually belonged to the infancy of the church. They were, as he says to the Corinthians in 2nd Corinthians 12.12, signs of the apostles and therefore ceased with the apostles. Now um, there's a a case to be made um, uh, it's a rather intricate case to be made uh, whether uh, sign gifts like uh, tongues uh, and prophecy uh, were peculiar to the early part of the early church and were signs of the apostles and ceased with the apostles or whether they continued. Actually, they didn't continue because that's just historical fact, but they re-emerged somewhere in the late 19th, early 20th uh, century. Some say they re-emerged, first of all, in San Francisco uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, And so it raises all all kinds of questions like why why were they not present for 1900 years? Uh, They raise questions like if tongues in in the New Testament seem to be foreign languages, you know, like Croatian or Welsh uh, or or Hindi or whatever, uh, which is what I think they were, certainly at Pentecost, um, uh, what are these phenomena that purport to be... uh, angelic languages or prayer language or something of that kind, but really have no connection with anything that you see in the New Testament. Now, I've I've given you something by way of arguments for and arguments against. Uh, I'm a a secessionist. I I believe these uh, gifts uh, ceased along with the apostles. Uh, Whatever phenomena are present today bear no relationship to the To the phenomena that you actually see in the New uh, Testament. The argument for and against secessionism uh, belongs to this part of the study that we're looking at because tongues and prophecy were also part of God's special revelation. They they revealed, they they were part of God's special revelation before um, the canon of Scripture was given. Uh, I've given you. Uh, At the very end, an appendix uh, by uh, Dr. Ferguson uh, from his book, The Holy Spirit, and I've just given you uh, a little uh, quotation from his book explaining uh, what he regards contemporary phenomena to be uh, and he too of course is a secessionist he also believes these tongue, these gifts of tongues and prophecy ceased along uh, with the apostles now uh, let me let me draw it to a conclusion um, we've we've been talking about special revelation in all of its forms uh, in in some of its infant forms in terms of dreams Um, in terms of of, uh, prophets in the Old Testament, in terms of certain sign gifts in the New Testament, all of which leads up to um, the culmination of special revelation in Scripture itself. So the next topic that we need to discuss is what is this phenomenon that we call the Bible, this phenomenon that we call Scripture? Um, that's uh, two million words, three languages Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Greek uh, 40 different authors uh, over a period of 15 15- a hundred years containing poetry and history and apocalyptic writings and narrative and and parables and letters and, and uh, construction uh, manuals and architects' drawings and all kinds of things. What is this phenomenon called the Bible, which is where we'll be next week. Now, I'm going to close in prayer. Then we're going to sing... Two verses of a hymn during which those of you who need to leave uh, should do so, because we are segueing uh, immediately after the singing into uh, our prayer time, so before you start moving chairs, let me pray in relative silence let 's pray our father, we thank you uh, thank you for the confidence that the Holy Spirit gives us concerning the fact that you do speak to us and you speak to us. Uh, through the scriptures and in time past you spoke to uh, patriarchs and prophets and apostles and you did so in uh, various ways and in diverse manners Uh, but now you've spoken to us by your son Jesus Christ and uh, we thank you that we have in our hands when we hold the bible true truth Uh, we have direct revelation from almighty God that we can trust our lives and deaths upon Uh, We thank you that we need not fear uh, the philosophies of the world and the the great men who have denied uh, almost everything that we've been saying uh, this evening. And uh, we we thank you, Lord, uh, for uh, the confidence and the assurance that we can have that holding the Bible in our hands, uh, we are holding the very word uh, of our Trinitarian God. So grant us blessing as we go our various ways, some of us as we stay for prayer this evening. We ask it all uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.